This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, our town hall with Congressman Adam Smith. As the 117th Congress has been in session for 100 days, it's a good time to check in with him on a range of issues, including his assessment of President Biden's performance in office thus far, democracy reform, income inequality, and more. And then, in his capacity as the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, we talk about Afghanistan, the defense budget, and what may be shaping up to be a Biden doctrine. That's next. Congressman Smith, it is always a pleasure to see you. How are you today? I am doing quite well. How are you? Both the Mariners and the Sounders won last night. So, you know. It's a good day here in Washington. And plus, we have the weather. So, and we're we're glad you're home to enjoy this weather uh, since it happens so rarely. So, uh, you know, I want to just start by uh, talking about uh, President Biden as we near his 100 day mark. Uh, you've been in Congress since 1996. I imagine that you have interacted with the president, uh, either as a senator or as vice president. And I'm wondering, have you been surprised by what many see as his uh, move to the left policy-wise as president? No, I, ha- I really haven't. I mean, I think he's done about what he said he was going to do when he was campaigning. Um, and, you know, you, you have to adjust to the situation. Uh, we needed a big, bold COVID relief package. We need a big, bold infrastructure package. And, and President Biden's position on Afghanistan, you know, has long been consistent with mine that it was time it was time to, you know, pull our troops out. So I think the president has led with with great clarity um, and, and honesty. And, you know, he's, he's doing a great job of leading us through a very difficult time. So I think it's pretty consistent with what he said he was going to do when when he was running. And, and you, as you see the evolution of his career, I, mean, I, I read many moons ago um, what it takes um, which is the sort of one of the definitive political books that looked at six uh, of the candidates for president in 1988. Um, and Joe Biden was one of those six that, that it really do- dove into and said, who is this guy? And one cornerstone about it is he's a guy who passionately believes in equality of opportunity and passionately believes that America's got a lot of work to do to achieve it, who, who remembers his blue collar roots, what he had to do to get opportunity in life and feels very strongly that we have an obligation to help others get there. I always remember that, I'm forgetting the exact line, but basically used to give the speech in 88 about how too much of America was about, okay, I got mine, so now I don't need to care about anybody else. Um, He put it in a much more clear way, but that, yeah, that was 32 years ago. So I think he's been very consistent and he's doing a good job right now. You know, this is just my own personal observation. You may agree or disagree with this, but he has always seemed to somehow track to the center of American politics, sort of find our, our, you know, our middle ground. I wonder if you feel that his shift is in any way indicative or reflective of where we're at as a country right now. Absolutely. Um, and I think also, you know, he first and foremost, he's a legislator, which, which I really respect, uh, being one myself. He wants to get things done. He wants to figure out, you know, how, how do we accomplish things and actually put them in place? He's not just about the rhetoric, he's about the accomplishments. Um, and yeah, no, certainly when you're looking at the pandemic, when you're looking at economic inequality, when you're looking at equity and social justice issues and gun violence, no, I think, you know, he, he's a representative. He, he understands, you know, that you, you, you need to do what the people are asking for. And he's got a keen sense of figuring that out. And I think he's, like I said, doing a good job of it right now. 
I want to unpack a lot of what you just said as we go through our conversation today. Uh, but I would like to start by talking about uh, the military and foreign policy, uh, particularly in your capacity as chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, and I'll start by asking a follow-up on a question that I asked you last year. Uh, I asked you if you thought that the world, and specifically our allies, would view Trump as an aberration, or really if they would trust us, come to trust us after Trump. Um, you said recently uh, in, a, in a forum that one of the ways back is, quote, overcoming the perception of our own incompetence. What if you could expand on that and, and, and talk about what needs to be done in your mind? Well, the pandemic's a huge part of that, obviously, um, and, and Trump's, you know, daily dishonesty. And I mean, he was our president. OK, and that's what the world saw. Um, and I think there was considerable concern about that. Um, and as we you know, deal better with the pandemic, I think the vaccine gives us a great opportunity um, as we work on distributing it throughout the world and showing that it works effectively. Um, but then just in terms of basic governance, I mean, the January 6th riot, you know, where it looked like, you know, we were incapable of the basics of representative democracy. Um, so getting that back, and that's why I think these first 100 days have been really important. We passed the COVID relief package. Um, the president has made it. We are doing the basics of governing in a much more effective way. And then second, we are showing that we want to be part of the world, okay? Not, you know, this is what we want, screw you. But how can we work together? You know, whether we're talking about getting Iran back to the table on the nuclear arms deal, uh, dealing with climate change, um, you know, even the way the president pulled out of Afghanistan, he didn't announce it in a tweet. Okay, he sent the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State to Brussels, sat down with our NATO allies, they talked through it, and by the end of it, they had a you know a joint statement of agreement. Um, so he is showing that we are a willing to lead and b willing to work together, and lastly, that we can make government work. And, yeah, I mean, people ask about trust. I, mean, I don't think anyone ever really trusts anybody else that, you know, it's, it's situational and you, you build it, you earn it. And we got to work that back. But if we do, if we continue on this path, I, I think we will find more partners in the world and we'll be better able to work together to confront the challenges of inequality and climate change, um, terrorism, whatever those challenges are, we'll be better able to deal with them collectively. So, yeah, so doing the basics, being part of the world, the JCPOA you mentioned, uh, and basically making government work. Uh, I, I want to just uh, backtrack just a little bit and talk about Afghanistan. Um, and you've already said that you agree with uh, Biden's decision here. I guess I'll ask you, uh, because the announcement is getting a bit of a mixed review, do you feel that there was ever going to be an ideal scenario for exit there? No, there wasn't. I think that's, and this is an argument that I've been making for two or three years now. You know, people kept saying, I'm with you, we need to get out, but it has to be conditions based. If you will, that was sort of the, the thoughtful foreign policy position to take. OK, but what did that mean when you dug down to it? I mean, conditions based was basically the idea that Afghan would be a peaceful, stable government and we could be confident that it would remain so after we left. That was not going to happen. You know, I've been to Afghanistan seven or eight times. There's a lot of history there and I'm not going to unpack it all right here, uh, but they got a lot of issues. Okay, it's not just the Taliban. There's tribes, there's distrust of government, there's various different, you know, ISIS is now present there. You know, we were not going to be able to do that, number one. And number two, the idea, and this is where we really need to fundamentally change our foreign policy, the idea that our military can force a solution on another country is simply wrong. 
it's not just that the conditions weren't going to be achieved. It was the idea that somehow the presence of the U.S. military was going to make it more likely that those conditions were going to be achieved. I didn't agree with that. Yeah, Afghanistan is going to be a violent, unsettled place for some time. Um, but our troops weren't going to change that. And the cost and the risk of keeping them there was was too great balanced against the benefit. So I hope we learn that lesson for you know, broader foreign policy engagement. You say our, our military uh, forcing a solution is ultimately wrong. And I want to expand on that idea a, a, a little bit here. A number of analysts are saying they believe that Biden's move out of Afghanistan may signal a real paradigm shift. Uh, Heather Cox Richardson uh, wrote recently that uh, we may be moving away from conventional boots on the ground, war on terror type engagement, and more toward, quote, diplomacy, cybersecurity, and financial infrastructures. And I'm wondering, what do you make of that assessment? Do, do you feel that we may be moving into a new era here? Yeah, I think this is one of the most trans. Well, no, it's probably the most transformational time in national security policy in the 24 plus years that I've been in Congress. Um, and I'm right in the middle of it. And I think there's some positive things going on in terms of making that transition. Look, I mean, the first Gulf War um, ultimately proved to be very problematic and <laughs> that it, it taught us some of the wrong lessons. It was a unique set of circumstances. But from that, people got the idea the U.S. military is so good, so much better than everybody else. We show up, we can do whatever we want to do, okay? Because that, you know, the first Gulf War, we pushed Saddam out of Kuwait, did all these great things, and we sort of become obsessed with the idea of the military as a tool of foreign policy. Um, it didn't really work that well past a certain point. Now, I think it is part of what we need to do in terms of maintaining a presence you know, building security coalitions like the European Defense Initiative, the Indo-Pacific Defense Initiative, where we build partner capacity, where we work with allies. I mean, national security is, sorry, the military is part of having a peaceful world. And I know there's some people who are, you know, don't like that idea. And well, if we all just pulled back, everything would be fine, right? Yeah, um, th there would be some issues. But going in full scale with the military to try to you know, change governments and all that. That's totally different than working with partners and developing that capacity. That sea shift is happening, number one. Number two, there is a growing awareness um, that the big, you know, tank on tank, ship on ship, plane on plane, all out war is really not the fights that we're going to have. When you see what happened in Crimea, what's been happening in the eastern Ukraine, what's happened in Armenia and Azerbaijan, it's more about information systems. Um, how you access that information, how you process it, how you make sure that your enemies can't disrupt it, how you can disrupt your adversary systems. And that's a total change in where we need to spend our money and how we look at the world. Um, there's a lot more into that. I won't, won't go on. But that, I think that shift is happening. And part of that shift is less of a reliance on the U.S. military being in places fighting. Um, and I think that's what Biden's decision reflects. I mean, it's too early to say, and I, I certainly don't want you to go too far out in front of your skis here, but do you have a sense that that is shaping up to be a Biden doctrine, perhaps? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and look, the, the key here is, is how do we deter our adversaries? And I think for too long, the military has said, well, the way we deter them is we show them a military that will dominate them no matter what. You know, that if we get into a big on fight, they know they're going to lose. Yeah, that, that gets increasingly difficult as, as power in the world becomes more spread out and China grows and all of that. But there are ways to deter them. 
there are ways to build alliances um, and have enough power so that China doesn't think it's okay to take over Taiwan. North Korea doesn't think it's okay to invade South Korea. Russia doesn't think it's okay to take over Eastern Europe. Um, there's a whole bunch of ways to do that that aren't about preparing for all-out war. And I think that doctrine is developing within the Pentagon, within the national security establishment. There's also a big piece of this, by the way, in terms of how we buy the systems we buy. This is the news I made a couple of weeks ago when I took a shot at the F-35. Um, there is a better way to make these systems so that they don't cost us so much and that we actually get what we're paying for. All of those changes are swirling around. You see the Marine Corps is going through a massive redo. Okay, who are we? What, what should be our mission? Air Force is doing the same. You know, we've had a number of bottom-up reviews and blank slate reviews that are really looking at a math. The world has changed so much in the 30 years since that Gulf War, and we have been really slow uh, to similarly change. And now it's starting to happen, and Biden is at the cutting edge of that, in my view. I'm glad that you brought up China, um, and I, we don't really have time to get into a protracted discussion uh, about that, but I think that is uh, of great concern, some of the military exercises that China has been conducting around Taiwan. Um, but I, I think it's encouraging what you're saying, that we are moving uh, more toward a diplomacy-based solution. Um, I, I want to ask you about something that you just tweeted. You said, quote, it is disappointing that the Biden administration's revised refugee policies announced today didn't increase the admissions cap from Trump's historically low number. Now, uh, this was 21 hours ago, so it appears that the administration has backtracked a little bit. But as somebody who focuses on outcomes, as you do, what is an ideal outcome when it comes to our refugee resettlement program? To, to rebuild the program. Um, and I'd look... I get what the Biden administration was saying. They're saying this thing has been torn down. We, we, we have to be able to do it right. And a lot of people don't realize this. There's actually a refugee resettlement center um, down in Kent. You know, it's, it's a fully funded thing. If you come in as a refugee, you get like, I don't know, it's like a year of, you know, there's education, there's, you know, language training, there's job training. Here, here's, how, here's how you live in, in this new country to help you make that transition successfully. And Trump, you know, and there was a lot of very public stuff that Trump did to savage immigrants and try to make it, you know, less available for people to come into this country. But then there was the quiet stuff he did, just gutting programs like that. Um, so I get that it's going to we're not going to get back up necessarily immediately to the, the levels that I think we ought to be at when we were in the 60 to 100,000 range. Um, you know, but just keeping it where it was at. Yeah, you know, it's not a big disagreement. I just wanted to push him a little bit to say, hey, we can do better than 15,000, because it's a key part, I think, of who we are as a country. Um, immigration is a positive for this country, bringing in refugees, taking in asylum seekers. You know, this, this idea that that makes us, you know, less of a country is completely wrong. Uh, so I want to see us be pretty aggressive about getting back to an immigration policy that I think reflects the best interests and the best values of our country. I see an awful lot of heads nodding out there as you say this. Uh, uh, before we uh, proceed, I want to welcome uh, Bellevue City Council Member Janice on. Welcome to you. Um, keeping on immigration, we know that national instability, uh, economic instability, climate change, all these other things drive massive migration. I'll, I'll ask you, where do you think we should be focusing our efforts on immigration in, say, um, at, at some of the source, like Central America's Northern Triangle, for example? Well, I think you know, <laughs> I'm laughing because in the middle of this, I'm going to quote Matt Gates, which I, I, would not, I would not think you would <laughs> I would not expect that from you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so much of our focus, of our foreign policy focus over the course of the last 20 years 
has been the Middle East and South Asia uh, and to a lesser extent, Africa. Um, that, you know, we've got a good relationship with Colombia in the side because of Plan Colombia, because of how their government worked with us to, to try to reduce the drug thing. But our relationship with Mexico is terrible. You've got the triangle countries been up and down in Honduras. Obviously, we know the story in Venezuela. Um, you know, I can go through the countries in Africa and the Middle East and South Asia and talk about exercises we're doing with them and the relationships we have with them and how we've been able to, you know, deal with challenges in those parts of the world. I can't do that for Latin America because so much of our focus has been over there. The Matt Gates thing is we had the, um, uh, I forget, we had a couple of different hearings. I think it was the European Command um, that was in, um, and Matt Gates chose, chose to talk about Afghanistan, how it was a good thing that we were pulling out of Afghanistan. Um, and his district has the seventh special forces group in it, special forces, the, you know, this is within the army. They are assigned to different parts of the world. Well, the seventh special forces group is, is supposed to be experts on Latin America. That's where they build those relationships. But for the last 20 years, they've been Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. They haven't been building relationships and the same is true of our diplomatic corps. Um, all of the focus has been over there. And we've been ignoring our relationships with our Latin American neighbors. And I'm not saying that us being present would, would magically make all of the economic and crime problems go away from those places, but it would help um, to get us back involved and back engaged. Because if the people in Latin America were safe and had economic, they wouldn't be flooding up to the border. I mean, I, I met a woman last week who works with um, Gabby and Mark Giffords sorry, Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly, um, you know, who talked to her brother, came to the country. He walked mm -hmm. from Ecuador. He walked from Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Okay. You don't do that just because, ah, I wonder what it's going to be like. Okay. Mm -hmm. You do that out of absolute desperation. We can do a lot more to help peace and stability and economic opportunity in, in, in Latin America. And we need to, to, to really pivot and, and, and focus on that because that's, that's what's driving you know, the thousands of people. And once those thousands of people show up at the border, there is no good solution. Right. We can do it better than Trump. We don't have to be cruel. Um, but it, you're, you're, you are mitigating the damages of a humanitarian catastrophe at that point. Um, we need to get to the root cause. I want to shift gears entirely and, and talk about the rise of extremism. Uh, in the United States, and in particular in the military. So we now know that one in five defendants arrested at the Capitol insurrection served in the military. Uh, I know that the House Armed Services Committee had a hearing last month. Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin also ordered the military to do something about extremism. What sort of action can we expect here? Yeah, I think that's going to, it's going to be difficult, um, but the problem is real. Um, in fact, there was um, one of your... Uh, uh, members sent me an article um, this week from NBC News that, that they went into some of the chat rooms that were uh, especially for special forces people. And it ain't good. OK, it's all QAnon conspiracies and the election was stolen, mixed in with racism and white supremacy. I mean, it is a problem within our country and a problem within the military. There is no question about it. But the way the battle is playing out right now, and this is what happened in our hearing is, you know, we tried to address the issue and with the Republicans, not all of them, but for the most part, number one, they say problem doesn't really exist. We're just making it up. But number two, they go on their whole anti-woke speech. And this is what Matt, Matt Gates did uh, during this one, you know, 
about how, you know, it's basically there. If you're conservative, you're considered to be an extremist. OK, and it's all politically correct. Cancel culture. We just want to make sure that people are reeducated and cultural revolution and all all that. Um, and let me say a couple things about that. Number one, no, there's a problem here. OK, it's a big problem. But the second thing that I wanted to get at in the hearing, and I think we did, is how do we address it? Because there is a risk of going too far. You know, just because somebody says, you know, I I don't necessarily trust the outcome of the election, that doesn't make them a white supremacist or, you know, we we have to figure out how how to work with and engage people and not marginalize them with a with a narrow approach to what the proper way to think about the world is. And I think there is some backlash to that. And we've seen it. There are stories all over the place, you know, about how equity and social justice stuff goes too far, treats everyone like a racist. And then you build this backlash and then no one's listening to anybody. Chaos ensues and the white supremacists have a target rich environment to go recruit in. So I want to try to figure out what's the right message to get at. What is extremism? Extremism is not, you know, someone who simply doesn't buy into every, you know, left wing political view. Um, How do you balance that? How do you come up with a proper definition and then enforce it? I think a lot of work needs to be done to do this right, but it's a huge problem and a huge threat, I think, to the, the uh, well, good order and discipline and ability of the military to do its job. And we, we need to address it. My committee is going to continue to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's it, it is a balance there because of the way that the uh, the Republicans are, uh, are basically using it as a cudgel uh, when they when they see uh, overreach. And I will just say as a side note, um, I hope that Matt Gates is not on your uh, committee for much longer. Um, th- this is a. This is something that occurred to me. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is something that occurred to me uh, the other night, in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep and I was preparing uh, for our, our, our talk today. We know that military training is so transformational in so many ways. It is designed essentially to, to take young people, to, to break them down and then rebuild them back up in a uniform fashion uh, that prepares them to lay down their lives for our country. Isn't it possible? Couldn't the same training be used to transform racial hatred and white nationalism? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, now I, I will also say that we're wrestling with that issue that you just described because, in addition to extremism, we've got a major sexual harassment problem. We've got a major suicide problem. We've got a major problem of violence within the military. Um, you know, we we are there's a hazing problem. We, we have a lot of our service members who don't feel safe in service for one reason or another. And we got to rethink, you know, how do we truly understand the people who are serving in the military and work with them to make sure that they're protected um, and to make sure that they're able to do their job? But yes, but the first thing we have to do to get to that is we have to agree on what extremism is. Okay. And to me, you know, the white nationalism and racism that is at the core of it. And then there's the anti government piece. There's the idea that, you know, I love my country, but I fear my government. You know, this notion that everyone thinks they're going to be Thomas Paine out there. It's like there's a slightly different era here. You know, I, I our country works and this is one of my core beliefs. I am passionate every day about how to make it work better every day about, OK, what what's not going right? How can we form this? But we have a system in place to do that. And I feel 100 percent that if you tear that system down, something worse is what's going to come in its place. 
So it is not acceptable to say, well, of course I stormed the Capitol because our constitution isn't being respected. No, we are a nation of laws. We have elections. We accept the outcome. There is a set of rules that you are to follow. Um, and if we throw those rules over the side, um, you gosh, that, when you serve in the military, you pledge an oath to all that stuff. You know, and if you're not comfortable with that, then go find something else to do for a living. Um, because you are supposed to be there to uphold the laws of this country and its constitution, not to say that you, 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 that you disagree with the way it's being done. Um, so, yes, I think we need to have exactly that type of education. Um, and that's what I think Secretary Austin is focused right now on doing. And by the way, I mean, it's great that we have Lloyd Austin as yeah. our Secretary of Defense. Um, he's got the perspective. You know, I mean, he came up as a black man in the military and experienced a lot of this. And he has the credibility to, to address it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, very lucky to have him. And you know, somewhat related to this is the discussion nationally around police reform. Um, I imagine that you, like everybody else, has been following the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, and of, of course, this week has also seen the murder of Dante Wright by police. I would imagine that you are aware of uh, the many steps that have been taken here at the state level with the legislature um, on police reform. I'll ask you, and I know that there are a number of bills in the works, but just generally speaking, philosophically, what do you feel that the federal government's role is in all this? How it fits into the equation in stopping police in this country from continuing to kill unarmed black men? Yeah, um, there are. Let me get to the federal piece in a second, because I want I want to lay out what I think is at the core of this that doesn't get enough attention. At the core of this is the way we are choosing to police in this country. There's a lot of talk about, you know, oh, they didn't they didn't do the training right. You know, they just they weren't trained. No, they were trained in a very specific way. Um, we decided a long time ago to have really aggressive policing. OK, you know, hyper aggressive policing, you know, and particularly in areas that were deemed to be high crime which, by the way, became an incredible moving target. Um, so police were trained, you know, stop and frisk, expired car tab, someone doesn't put their turn signal on, pull them over, okay? You know, be aggressive, get out front, get in people's face. And I get that you're trying to stop the crime before it happens, but that also creates a massive divide in the community. You are hassling people most of the time that don't need to be. Then you combine that with the racism that is, you know, been endemic in our society for a long time. And it, you know, if you talk to police officers, there's a lot of them that tend to think, yeah, black people are more likely to commit crime. Okay. So now they're, they're looking for quote, high crime areas and they're told to be aggressive. So they're going to be right in there in communities of color doing that. And that creates a conflict right off the bat. And then police officers are trained to be afraid. That is how they are trained. Every, every encounter, every time you come in, it could be your last, all right? I think that's a terrible way to train a police officer, okay? So, you know, and then the last piece of it is, and how do you handle that situation? You have to, quote, dominate the confrontation. This is the whole, and I deal with this in the military all the time, escalate to de-escalate. That's a, I mean, where in the hell does that ever work? Every escalation I've seen leads to, I don't know, escalation. That's how we're training them. That training needs to be changed. And I think the federal government can be part of saying the cost of this hyperactive policing that we've engaged in in the last 50 years is simply too high. We have to change that. The big thing, and I'll promote one of my own bills here, is the other thing is 
you need to reduce the number of times that the police have to have these encounters. We are calling the police out for things that are not necessary, that they should not be called out for, shouldn't happen. Now, part of that is the mental health issue. And it's simple. I mean, we've got models in a couple of isolated places in the country, and we've talked about this before, you know, and I've got a bill now to help the federal, the federal government would fund a, you know, alternative 911 service, which is basically social workers. Okay, if someone's having a mental health episode, you don't send out law enforcement, you send out a social worker. So you don't have that confrontation. You don't have that escalation. And I'll close with just this stat. And this is from the project down, done down in Eugene, Oregon. You know, they have this system down there. And one year, I guess 2019, 2018, something, there were 29,000 times when the social workers were called out. And something like 170 of those times, they required law enforcement assistance. And to me, that means two things. One, yeah, sometimes it's dangerous. And sometimes you're going to need, you know, someone who knows how to handle a dangerous situation. But 170 out of 29,000? I mean, that gives you some idea the numbers of times when it's not necessary and how many conflicts get escalated when they didn't even need to start in the first place. I think the federal government should be a leader in making those changes in the way we police. I've actually heard some of those numbers recently, and it's it's. Um it's really quite upsetting when they talk about the number of people who actually would be alive if some of this alternative uh, response had been in place. Um, and I will just billboard uh, the fact that uh, we here on the town hall series on May 4th are going to be doing a town hall on behavioral health and policy. And Kat, maybe if you have a chance, you could drop that into the chat bar. Uh, this topic deserves the full hour, which I wish we could take. But I want to I want to move on and get your thoughts on some of Indivisible's legislative priorities. Um, the first have to do with democracy reform. Uh, the For the People's Act, D.C. statehood, both of which I, I am confident that you support. Uh, and regarding S-1, the For the People Act, this would broadly protect voting rights. Uh, and I think a lot of indivisibles see this as a make or break moment for our democracy, especially what's happening with voter suppression laws all over the country right now. How do you see it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I think we need to reeducate people on how representative democracy works and why it's so important. Because increasingly, you know, the Republicans have decided, you know, if democracy will work for us to advance their agenda, great. If it won't, we'll find something else. Right. Okay. You know, it's not so much. And, and people, I mean, the value to me of a representative democracy, and it's never going to be perfect. Okay. Not everyone's going to vote. Not everyone's going to have an equal voice. But you try to make sure there are, that people have a voice and they have a chance. And like I said earlier, I think our system works pretty well. And then you accept the outcome. We sort of skip past that accepting the outcome part. And we're like, if the outcome doesn't go our way, then to hell with representative democracy. So I think you're right. This is at the core of how our country functions. You know, when you go into election and say, as I forget who said it, but someone after the, um, after the Republicans lost this last election, the normal response when you lose an election is to, okay, what was, our, what was wrong with our message? You know, what, what group of people you, you do the demographic, you know, who aren't we appealing to? The Republicans said, now we need to get fewer people. We need to get fewer people to vote. <laughs> yeah. We need to change the electorate. Okay, uh, it's a dark laugh. I'm, I, I apologize. Yeah, yeah it's, no, it's, it's, it's it, and yeah. yeah, I think this is at the core, and I think part of it is legislation, but also I think the public pressure is appropriate. What you've seen from from corporations and others, and say, look, you want to go run on a conservative agenda? That's fine. Okay, we'll we'll have a debate. We'll have an argument. We'll elect who we elect. And we'll go forward. You want to try to go out there and disenfranchise people? so that you can govern in an undemocratic way, 
we're not going to stand for that. I think it is at the core of the future of this country. And, you know, I'm just going to editorialize here and say that for the most part, Republicans really don't have a popular uh, set of policies. And so this is, you know, where they're pushing all their chips in on. And of course, this cannot happen. Uh, S1 cannot happen without uh, killing the filibuster. You've talked about this, and I'm wondering how you feel we can get our senators on board with this. And particularly, I mean, both of our senators, Senator Murray, in a discussion that we had recently, had signaled uh, openness to this. I'm wondering how we can apply pressure, how you feel that we in the uh, in the activist community can, can apply pressure. And we're wondering if you can apply pressure since you have a relationship with our senators. Yeah. I mean, the two arguments that, that I make is it's all it's well known. I'm not breaking any new ground here. The filibuster is not part of the Constitution. You know, you can debate whether or not it was put in place for white supremacist purposes. You know, certainly in, in certain instances it was. But regardless of why it was put in, it's not democratic. I mean, what? You know, why, if you win an election, you ought to be able to govern. I mean, right off the bat, our founding fathers put us, you know, in, in a bit of a corner on that by having a bicameral legislator and president. It's not like a parliamentary system. You know, you don't, you win, you don't necessarily govern. Well, who won the House? But, but 60 votes, it's majority rules, okay? And, and we ought to have that because then you can hold the Senate legitimately accountable, all right? You know, what, what did they do? Instead of saying, well, you know, we had 55, we didn't have 60. Um, and, but the second argument that I would hope that Democrats would recognize goes back to what happened with the Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell. And, you know, Democrats scream a lot about Merrick Garland and, you know, how dare he didn't bring him up for a vote. And then he jammed Amy Comey Barrett through. And it's like, I mean, understand. And I've, I say this all the time. And sometimes this gets me in trouble because people don't like to hear it because we're supposed to win no matter what. But, you know, you got to have the votes. All right. Why did Mitch McConnell not give Merrick Garland a hearing? Why did he do what he did with Amy Comey Barrett? Because he could. All right. He had the votes. And and to a certain degree, I don't have a problem with that. I don't like the outcome. OK, but if he's going to do that, why the hell aren't we? <laughs> OK, you know, why? Why would we set up an artificial construct and say, well, we know they'd roll over us in that position, but we're going to we're going to be good good about it. We, we want to be fair. It's the rules, and and also keep in mind when we well, we only changed the filibuster for a couple of things. Yeah, they only changed it to cut taxes and appoint judges, and those are the only two things they care about. Literally, they don't want to do anything else. If they wanted to pass massive health care reform, they would toss the filibuster out the window for that too. So we want to pass health care reform. We want to pass gun safety legislation. We want to pass comprehensive immigration reform. So why wouldn't we use all of the tools that are legally and legitimately before us to achieve those goals? I just, I don't get it. Um, and I think we need to make that case. You can expect to see that uh, going around Twitter probably later today or tomorrow as a soundbite. Uh, you put that uh, extraordinarily well. I, I appreciate that. Um, I want to move on and talk about Biden's uh, recently released $2.3 trillion recovery package. Um, there is so much in this, the American Jobs Plan. Uh, so rather than breaking it down, which uh, would take you know much more time than we have, I'll just ask you, uh, what specifically will you be advocating and pushing for us here in Washington? Yeah, I think the um, the big thing is the opportunity. Well, there's several several things. Two that aren't necessarily 
you know, top of mind. When you think about infrastructure, we got to build roads and bridges. People think of the what the West Seattle Bridge. I've got a bridge down, and not me personally, but down in Tuckwilla, there's a bridge that's about to fall apart. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of that stuff going on. But I think there are two big transformational opportunities here. One is on 5G telecommunications, uh, which is so crucial to our ability to compete in the world um, and so crucial to, you know, in increasing equality of opportunity. And then second is the obvious, you know, climate change. How do you get off of a, of a fossil fuel based economy? Um, infrastructure is a big part of it. Um, you know, if we start to support a clean energy infrastructure, that makes it easier. Because fossil fuels have about a 170-year head start on us. My math may be a little off there, but right about in that range. Where, you know, the pipelines, the gas stations, all this, all this stuff was built around the idea that we were going to dig fossil fuels up out of the ground and we were going to make put them into things to make them go. So we need to shift that. And this is a huge opportunity to do that, um, to support, um, you know, semiconductors and wind and solar and electric vehicles. Um, so that's, those are the two big things. If we can accomplish that transition, it would be huge for us here in this region. Um, a lot of it is going to be, you know, finishing mass transit, you know, mass transit where you're talking about buses and all that stuff. So, and then, yeah, we also have our, our two ports, um, which are really important and, and building the roads and bridges and infrastructure necessary to enable those ports to get goods to market quickly while not bollocksing the rest of us up in traffic. And we've got a long list of projects that are just waiting to go. So I think we can plug that in and it can be really beneficial to the Puget Sound region. That's very exciting, and uh, that actually you you addressed a question that Dan had about the infrastructure bill uh, helping King County Metro Transit's operational costs. Uh, it's probably a state level question, but I, I would imagine that there is uh, going to be federal money apportioned to that. Um, I want to talk about the way that Biden is paying for this. Um, he is proposing to pay for this largely by increasing taxes on the wealthy and corporations. I will just ask you bluntly. Is this an opportunity to begin to address economic inequality in this country? Absolutely. Um, and now, you, you, in part, just building that infrastructure that I just described addresses it. Because, you know, if you're an average, if you're a rich person, you know, you buy a helicopter, okay? You, 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 there's all kinds of things you can do to get, but but to, build, to have a better infrastructure where, you know, you can get the access to energy you need, you can get the access to, to you know, high-speed internet that you need, all of that helps. Uh, but the tax code is just at the core of this. And it's so frustrating. And I look, I understand the Republicans have been really clever about this. People don't like taxes. Nobody likes taxes. Nobody's ever liked taxes. Um, so they just say they're raising taxes on you and use that argument. And we've built a tax code that has protected corporations and the wealthy. And when Trump did his tax cut a few years ago, and corporations have been arguing forever. Oh, the corp we have the highest corporate tax rate in the Western world. No, we actually don't because the effective rate is like the second lowest, what you actually pay, all right, because of all the write-offs and deductions and all the stuff that's in this. Look, I, I think corporations and the, and the super wealthy should pay more. I just do. I mean, I don't, I don't see how there's any argument otherwise. And then people hit me with the, well, well, you know, they worked hard for the money. You're, you're punishing success. I love that argument. <laughs> you know, my wife and I just went for a walk this morning around our neighborhood in Bellevue. And if, if that's what punishing success looks like, bring it on. Um, you know, I mean, th th there's more than enough money. People are more than successful enough. You know, 
And we built this country that helped give them those opportunities. Meanwhile, inequality is leading to a crushing homelessness problem. It's leading also, I think, to a lot of the frustration. And that frustration boils out in a bunch of different directions, including you know people becoming white supremacists and joining the Trump movement. They don't think society is fair, so they look for something radical. To, so if we could be more fair, we would have a more peaceful and stable society. And the tax code is a marvelous place to start. Um, there is no reason why those people, this is a great opportunity. I, I support Elizabeth Warren has some very aggressive wealth taxes, which I'm supporting as well. And like I said, I'm when, sorry, just one more final point on this. A lot of times people will say, well, you know, and they'll give you the history of countries that have had really high tax rates on the wealthy and talk about how it didn't work. What they're talking about is countries that had tax rates that were like 90%. Okay, or the capital gains rate in the U.S. was 66% uh, until John F. Kennedy cut it to 50, 5 zero. Okay, and if somebody comes along to me and says, oh, I think we should have a 90% tax rate, I will be against that. Okay, all right, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just moving it up a little bit. We're talking about 35 to 45, and we're talking about having corporations pay more than 10%, or in some cases, pay something, all right? Once you get north of 50, yeah, then maybe, then we have a debate, all right? But let's get within at least sniffing distance of 50 before we have to listen to all these arguments about how high tax rates, you know, create all these problems. They don't. What our system right now is doing is creating a crushing level of inequality. I would encourage anybody who uh, wants to know about the history of tax rates in this country and when they peaked to take a look at the Eisenhower years. I think you'd be quite surprised at just how high uh, taxes were at that point. But that was uh, a different era. That was during the liberal consensus when th such things were supported even by Republicans. Um, but but ultimately, what you're you're talking about here is very, very popular. And, you know, I, I want to kind of ask about um, how Biden has in many ways through using uh, but by putting forth things that are broadly popular with voters instead of elected officials, he seems to have kind of redefined bipartisanship a little bit. I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Conventional wisdom says that presidents lose their majorities in midterms because of overreach. Uh, the narrative is Obama lost his because of the ACA. Trump lost his in part because of tax cuts for billionaires, but also... He was Trump. I mean, he's just an incredibly unpopular human being. <laughs> Couple other things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's a counterpoint now that going big on things that people actually like, uh, the relief package, the infrastructure package, the way that we're paying for it, is it makes it even more popular, may actually help Democrats keep their majority in 2022. Where do you land on that? Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's too simple to say it's one thing or the other. Uh, by and large, I think the reason that parties in power lose the majority is there is an expect that they do not meet the expectation of what people think they're supposed to accomplish. Now that expectation sort of moves around a little bit and sometimes people have unrealistic expectations, but I think setting the right expectation and then achieving it is important. Um, and yeah, and, and part of that is accomplishing things. And I think Biden is in a unique position to do that on COVID, on the economy, on some of these fundamental issues. Find what's popular, push it and, and, and stand for it. And I, I, I do think that that is helpful. Now, I, I'm a little reluctant to go the, well, we have to do big things. It's like, well, depends on what it is. Okay, some big things are wrong, but if the big thing you're talking about is help people stay in their homes and, and be able to feed themselves during the pandemic, stop the pandemic, you know, get the economy turned around, build infrastructure, 
yeah, those are big, you know, get us a fairer tax code. Those are big things that are going to make a huge positive difference for the country and that people are going to support. Um, and the bipartisan thing, I, you know, I, there was all kinds of quote unquote moderate Republicans wringing their hands about how disappointing it was that COVID was not bipartisan. The infrastructure is not going to be bipartisan. I don't recall any of them expressing, you know, distaste that the tax cut wasn't bipartisan. Right. Yeah, they were perfectly okay <laughs> with that. And so whenever we get into those types of conversations, look, as I said before on the filibuster, the rules are the rules. And this is the way, you know, 50% plus one. I mean, that's, that's, that's my model that you, you got to win. All right. And if you got the votes, you got the votes and wringing our hands about, Oh, it would have been better if we'd had more, yeah. you know, get the votes, get it done and then go sell it. And I think Biden and, and Vice President Harris have done a really good job on both of those things. Seeing a lot of nodding heads. Uh, it is time to get into audience questions. Now we have over 10 minutes. We have about 13 minutes here. So I will uh, put out the call right now. If anybody watching wants to submit some questions, please do so in the chat bar and Kat will throw them my way. Um, so we had a number of questions about reducing military spending as we always do when the two of us talk. Um, one was very specific. Mary asks, do you support eliminating funding for the ground-based strategic deterrent and submarine-launched cruise missiles? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure yet. Um, I support reworking how much money we're going to spend on nuclear weapons going forward. I think we are spending too much on nuclear weapons. Is it the GBSD? I mean, I've looked at a number of studies that say that it's too soon. We don't need to be the G build the GBSD right now. I personally question whether or not we need the um, the land portion of the triad. Um, my sense is that politically it's going to be really tough to stop. So I'm trying to figure out, is there a place in the nuclear budget where we can realistically make reductions? I think the nuclear-based cruise missile is, is probably the better place to go um, in terms of killing a program. I think we're more likely to be successful there. There's also a huge issue on the nuclear pits. Sorry, that's the little ball of plutonium that makes the thing go boom. Um, and we're planning on spending an enormous amount of money right now to try to build more of those that I don't think is needed and I don't think it's going to be cost effective. I guess my first run at the defense budget right now is to find those things like you know the, the amount of money we're spending on the F-35, the amount of money we're spending on nuclear pits, the amount of money we're spending on the nuclear arsenal writ large that is impossible to justify regardless of how you feel about how strong defense should be. Um, you know, but I, I haven't made a firm decision on either of those programs yet to, to, to be determined. We're taking a hard look at the budget right now. You are taking a, a nuanced approach to this, and I'm going to ask you to take a, maybe a more broad approach with these next two questions, which I will just read, and then and then I'll ask you a, a more direct question. Beth asks, what is your plan to reduce military spending and its harmful environmental climate impact? And Donald Smith says, will you join the Defense Spending Reduction Caucus? You rejected a 10% cut to the Pentagon budget last year. And again, you and I have talked a lot about this, and I will ask Kat at this point to, uh, to drop in a link to our past conversations because we devoted basically an entire show to the NDAA. But it, it seems to me that what a lot of people ultimately want to know is this. In your mind, is there a scenario in which you see the United States ever drawing down its defense budget? I'm sure. Well, I mean, we just made a huge decision on that front and pulling out of Afghanistan. 
I don't know what the numbers are, but that's, I want to say it's like eight to $15 billion a year that we're spending over there. So I think the way to draw down the defense budget is to change our mission. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not in favor of just simply cutting it while we still have a mission out there. Um, but if we change the mission, we reduce the mission, we can spend, spend less money on the military. Now, we got to figure out what that national security strategy is. Now, while I 100% believe that relying on the military to go in and fight its way to change things in places like Iraq or Iran or anyplace else, I do feel that the presence of the U.S. military globally is more of a positive than a lot of, of your members do. I think there's a very strong feeling that the presence of the U.S. military is a malign influence in the world. You know, why are we in Korea? Why are we in Japan? Why are we in Eastern Europe? Our presence creates more conflict than it reduces. I don't agree with that. I think in some ways, certainly there was a comment earlier about our messing around in Latin America in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, I'm with you on that. As CIA, as much as it was the U.S. military, that doesn't help anything. Um, but if we're working with the Baltic states and Poland and Romania and Ukraine to make sure that they're strong enough to resist an attack from Russia so that it doesn't happen, that makes the world a more peaceful place and ultimately saves money on defense. You know, if we have enough allies and enough strength in Asia so that North Korea doesn't invade South Korea and China doesn't invade Taiwan, same thing. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. What, what amount of spending meets a national security policy that makes sense? Now, if we pull, if we stop the fighting in Afghanistan, it saves us a lot of money. If we are able to get to a nuclear deterrent um, with fewer missiles, saves a lot of money. That's the way I want to do it. I, at this point, I'm not prepared to say we're going to cut 10% across the board and just see what happens. I'm trying to build the policy that enables us to have less of an investment in the military and still meet our needs and our objectives. I do think that there are threats in the world. Um, and I also think that sometimes we wish them away. I've, and, and Don, who I know is listening, and I, I've had epic back and forths on this. I really don't think that the conflict with Russia is all our fault. Um, I don't think that China is just this benign, you know, Asian power that if we just walked away, everything would be fine. Talk to the people in Hong Kong about that. And by the way, I read extensive articles about what's going on with the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs in that part. And it's not all being made up by right-wing people who want to build up our defense budget. Um, there are issues out there that we need to work with the rest of the world to try to confront. I just don't think that having you know, a, a U.S. military invasion as plan A is the way to go about it. But there's still money that we're going to need to meet our national security needs. I think it can be lower, but we've got to work towards that. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. We had a couple questions about the no first use legislation that you just introduced with uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. This declares it is the policy of the United States to not use nuclear weapons first. Uh, Tara asks, I'm sorry if it's Tara or Tara, I apologize. Uh, is the Senate Armed Services Committee going to agree with legislation promoting a no first use policy? I, you don't have a crystal ball, obviously, but what does your gut say? I don't know. I think... Again, the filibuster makes that very difficult. My, my guess is we probably don't have the votes to do that this year, um, but we're going to push the argument. And I think pushing the argument is, you know, is also important, even if we don't pass the policy, because, you know, we go tiptoeing down the road of, you know, sort of a tactical nuclear response. And this is one of my biggest arguments. 
when we get into the no first use debate, you know, a lot of the folks who are against that policy say, well, we shouldn't take options off the table. You know, we don't want our adversaries to know what we're not going to do. We want to, you know, keep them guessing and everything. Well, okay, but you know, we, we don't want them to be little, really guessing about whether or not a nuclear war is okay. Well, can I? I'm right. sorry to just jump in. Can I ask about the the language of it? Because it says it is the policy of the United States to not use nuclear weapons first. But is that absolutely prohibitive? Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, I, I don't. I obviously not. I mean, the commander in chief can ultimately do what what he or she wants to do. But I think it make what it makes clear is that our nuclear arsenal exists as a deterrent against the use of nuclear weapons. That is what our nuclear arsenal should be for. If we are entertaining the idea that our nuclear arsenal can achieve some other military objective other than stopping other countries from using nuclear weapons, then that is one big step towards stumbling into a cataclysmic nuclear war. And that's what I believe. All right. And, you know, we had this, I had this debate for the last couple of years. You know, the Russians supposedly were entertaining the idea of using tactical nuclear weapons if they thought they were losing a war in Eastern Europe. And there's all this discussion about, well, if they use a small one and we use a small one. And then anytime you start talking about how it is acceptable to use a nuclear weapon in a conflict, again, you are walking down a very dangerous road and no first use. Take, takes us back from that road and says, we're not going to use these. We have them so that nobody else will either. I think that's very straightforward. I, I'm reminded very darkly of uh, George C. Scott in uh, Dr. Strangelove, yeah, <laughs> suddenly as you're, as you're saying these, these things. Um, so we had a question about uh, your introduction of the adoptee citizenship bill. Christopher asks, is it realistic to have a House vote before summer of uh, 2021? Yeah, I think, I think, that, I think it is. Now, and we're trying to work through this on the immigration. Obviously, we want comprehensive immigration reform, um, and I'd love to get that big, huge piece. But if we can, if we can do DACA, okay, if we can do some of the smaller things, and the adoptee citizenship is one of those smaller things, um, then, um, then yes. And that's I'm working very closely with Zoe Lofgren and others, and we're trying to build the momentum. You know, as we said earlier, you want to do big things, you also want to put points on the scoreboard. Okay, and this is a good, sensible immigration reform that we can do, that we have the votes for. I think we ought to do it. Um, I do want to um, – question is why do we need more nuclear weapons? We have, what, 8,000? We actually have 4,000. Um, so I just want to be accurate on that number. Um, and the reason they're talking about building more is because a lot of the ones we've had are you know, aging out. Um, they're talking about replacing that stockpile. But it is my position that we don't need 4,000. Okay, and we don't necessarily need three separate delivery systems. Um, what is an adequate deterrent? I think that adequate deterrent is a lot lower than the nuclear posture review currently calls for. That's the argument I'm trying to make. And then, you know, is it does that mean we get rid of the LRSO or the cruise missile? Also, by the way, we're trying to get rid of the low yield nuclear weapons that Trump put on our submarines. Um, again, a low-yield nuclear weapon is an invitation to think that you can have a limited nuclear exchange. So we're trying to pull those back, too. Um, so which pieces of it? I don't know. I just know that it doesn't need to be the 4,000 that we currently have. Uh, Jacob Hunter asks, I'll bring this up here. Uh, I recently read that over one-third of the military is opting out of COVID vaccinations. Uh, what do you think is the best way to address this issue? 
I think the best way to address it is to get full formal FDA approval so we can say, yeah, you don't have a choice. Um, you're in the military because that's the problem right now because it's under an emergency use authorization. According to the law, we can't require service members to take it. It's a big, big, big problem. Um, you know, now I hope that as people see um, that it's working and helping, that that number will go down. But it's a real big problem right now. Uh, within the military, yeah, it is roughly about one third that are declining to take it. So, like I said, the quickest, easiest path, get FDA approval and require it. Um, in the meantime, we're going to continue the ongoing education campaign. One last question, and we'll let you go enjoy the sunshine. Um, and this is about gun control. Uh, we have a Democratic trifecta and a couple of Republicans potentially on board. What is possible in your mind on gun control right now? Yeah, and I've, I've talked with Mark Kelly a lot about this because, you know, he and uh, his wife, Gabby, have been working on it a lot. And I've been, you know, being in close touch with them. And he and I tied this at dinner with them on Monday, uh, Tuesday. But um, and he believes that it is an assault weapons ban is possible and that the, you know, universal background checks is possible. And he he knows Joe Manchin reasonably well. And he said he felt that both of those things were possible this year. And I think that would be an excellent start. Um, now, we need a comprehensive approach to gun violence. Uh, much, much, much more needs to be done, but that would be a really good start if we could get those passed federally. Kat, will be here in just a moment with some upcoming events, but uh, I, I will let you go at this point and just say thank you. It is always uh, engaging, informative, uh, and quite frankly, entertaining uh, to speak with you. We really appreciate you taking the time, Congressman. Well, thank you, Stefan. I appreciate it. You always do an outstanding job as a moderator. Oh, um, so, and we'll, we'll stay in touch. And I'm, I'm excited. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're moving forward. Biden's doing a good job and we've got a real chance to make positive change. I want to keep, keep pushing that forward. Our thanks again to Congressman Adam Smith. Special thanks to Robin Gittleman, Louise Bathay, Kevin Jones, Chantel Thurman, and Glenn Carpenter. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. This podcast is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.